Suburban Agorist Podcast, episode number 10. My name is James, and today I am excited to be joined by one of the giants of libertarianism, one of my favorite communicators, Jeffrey Tucker of the American Institute for Economics Research. First, I'd like to tell you about wax and wick candles. A wax and wick candle is the perfect gift for the guy in your life who doesn't want his apartment smelling like vanilla pumpkin pie frappuccino. The all-natural candles from wax and wick come in classy scents like whiskey, oak moss, and black amber. If the guy in your life has enough pairs of socks, head over to www.urbanagoras.com candles for a unique Christmas gift he'll cherish. And with that, let's get into it with Jeffrey Tucker. All right, Jeffrey Tucker, welcome to the Urban Agorist Podcast. Thanks so much for joining me today. That's my pleasure, and thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so being that uh, being that you're one of the bigger names in libertarianism, I'm guessing that a lot of my listeners are familiar with you, but uh, why don't you kind of fill us in on where you've been, where you're at right now, where you're going? Sure. That kind um, of thing. So I'm, I'm at the American Institute for Economic Research, and I'm the editorial director here, and it's been a, a wild year. Um, I, I have last year, I, I guess I, my book was uh, The Market Loves You, <laughs> and uh, that was that was a nice book. Um, but then a lot of things changed. And yeah. so this year I have a new book out called Liberty or Lockdown. So, you know. I mean, the world's dramatically in upheaval this year. I've, I've, I've spent most of my career writing, you know, happy things, helping people understand that uh, the market economy is really about human beings and built by human beings, human choice, and that it, that it's got, it's, it, it's got a surface service ethic at the very heart of it, um, and it's a way we can connect with each other and make the world a better place and make life more wonderful and pretty. And I've been writing along those lines for most of you know ever since I, I began this, uh, since since you know since the mid '80s really, and and um, so generally been a very happy person. I, I was reluctant this year to uh, to do what I had to do in terms of lockdowns, because it, it's not in my nature to compl- complain and complain and complain, and um, much less be sad and, and uh, uh, observe so much sadness around me. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, I, I did it because I just noticed that there was an, not enough fight in people uh, going into this pandemic. You know, it's I, I warned about this January 27th. I, I said, you know, the government does have these quarantine powers. I doubt they'll ever be used, but but they are out there and um, um, uh, and would be highly regrettable to see the see, see them deployed. Um, it it doesn't matter how bad or how mild or how severe uh, the pathogen is. Um, public health is never a good excuse for violating people's human rights. Mm-hmm. And and then and then it all happened, right? And it all happened very quickly. And and, and I think it was uh, March eighth was was the day uh, in which the government of Austin shut down South by Southwest. Now, in retrospect, that was a catastrophic decision because there wasn't anybody who was attending South by Southwest, two hundred fifty thousand people, who was in any special sense um, vulnerable to COVID nineteen. Um, and plus, it's my own view that people should be able to make their own decisions and not have governments make make those decisions for them. So, <clears throat> I wrote an article saying, you know, why why are we cho- choosing this draconian methods for uh, disease mitigation? And then it got worse, and then it got worse, and then it got worse, and that's yeah. that's basically the history of this year, unfortunately. I was I was actually just in Austin last month, and uh, it's it's even it's even weirder than I live in Minneapolis, which is also kind of a weird progressive city, but Austin takes it to a new level. They had um, retail retail stores with the the front door shut and locked. You couldn't enter until a clerk came and let you in to let the next the previous person out. Um, we went to a restaurant and there was someone apparently on staff who was just paid to stop people from refilling their drinks at the at the soda fountain. Um, people, ev- nearly everyone was wearing a mask outdoors on the sidewalk. It wasn't crowded. There were just, you know, people walking around by themselves uh, mm-hmm. or in small groups um, with their little muzzles on. Uh, it was really kind of sad. And then, of course, the the very famous Austin mural um, where everyone takes their pictures it says, I love you so much. And of course, because it was election season, they painted over the, I love you so much and changed it to, I love voting so much. So I didn't even get my cool 
mural picture from this yeah. trip to Austin. Talk about hyper-politicization. It's yeah. been the strangest thing because in that little anecdote you just told you, you see several things. I mean, one is a kind of a, uh, a, a mysticism or a superstition that's 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 grown up around this virus. Like yeah. You can't you can't see it, and so people uh, are not happy with the idea that that we don't we don't know where the virus is. So they just start making things up. Oh, there are viruses here. The virus is there. Um, I better wear this, wear that, do this kabuki dance, and st stand away from people and treat everybody as a potential pathogen instead of a human being with dignity. So there's that. And then, um, and then the politicization of a virus. It's like the worst thing you could ever do is turn over disease mitigation to, to, to government because that necessarily means you're going to politicize the whole thing. Yeah. And so, and so this year, so it's been one of the strangest things that that you can actually track people's attitudes towards um, mitigation efforts and public health based on their political outlook rather than uh, science. So we've just thrown science out in favor of of politics and and it's been it's been catastrophic i i hope we learned the right lessons from this year you know um but it's going to take i would say years and years and years uh maybe maybe even decades before people have confidence again in uh, the stability of of the things we used to take for granted you know the freedom to travel <clears throat> the um you know the, the that we can start a business and government won't just sh shut it down. Right. Um, uh, you know, that we can, um, we, we can, uh, you know, have, have a job and hold that job based on w whether we like it or not quit when we want to take another job. You know, now, now we have government telling us, you know, who's essential and who's not essential. Mm -hmm. Even, even access to healthcare has been massively disrupted, you know, um, Governments all over the country, astonishingly, decided to get rid of elective surgeries and and screenings uh, for a good part of of the year, uh, based on the belief that COVID was going to be much much worse than it turned out to be. And so, 350 hospitals in this country furloughed workers because they didn't have any patients. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, and I mean, f f during three months of this year. In major parts of the country, you could not go to the dentist. I mean, like we got rid of dentistry. Um, I mean, it's just the, the, the litany of things that 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 has been done this year in the name of uh, disease management is um, utterly shocking. And I think I think it's going to take a long time for us to come to terms with what's happened. And mm -hmm. and I don't think that people people can will get their confidence back until we get open admission on the part of public uh, health officials and, and politicians that what they did was wrong. And to my knowledge, uh, nobody has said that yet. Yeah, other than perhaps Governor DeSantis in Florida. Uh, I was going to say that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He, he reopened and actually he gave a pretty good message, I think. And actually, in, in collaboration with the same scientists who um, wrote the Great Barrington Declaration, if I mm -hmm. recall. Uh, mm -hmm. Which was yeah, they Kuldorf, Bhattacharya, and and Gupta all uh, went to a sort of a Zoom meeting with with DeSantis and and instructed him on the science and mm -hmm. but he's he's very very sophisticated about this. The other one is uh, Christy Noem from South yeah. Dakota. She really she knows her stuff too. Um, but uh, and and Governor Kemp from Georgia is, is you know had not been all that terrible. Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, that's, those are pretty rare figures in the United States. You know, you'd think that this country, after all the sloganeering we've done for so many generations, really since the Gilded Age, about land of the free, home of the brave, you know, our Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and, you know, uh, all these things, that, that we wouldn't have taken this course of action. Uh, but, but even now, I mean, I mean, it's just amazing how this stuff just lasts and lasts. This, the Wall Street Journal this morning runs an article by Scott Gottlieb at the American Enterprise Institute, which was once in favor of free markets and capitalism. Mm -hmm. uh, it's probably his 20th article on the Wall Street Journal op-ed page. And he's calling for all, all bars and restaurants in the whole country to be shut down again. I mean, it's just like, how do you do that? And, and on what basis? I've got an intern right now, actually not an intern employee, looking at the science behind the bar and restaurant um, 
bands and it's, it's all just flimsy uh, nonsense all silly modeling with with all sorts of fallacies and mistakes and statistical errors and and there's something like five studies out there that seem to kind of indicate that restaurants spread covid but um but none of them really make a verifiable uh, thesis and uh, all of them are, are, are bad science. Uh, there's there's no evidence whatsoever that the restaurants are, are spreading COVID death. I mean, it's just it's right. just ridiculous. There seems to be a kind of, you know, I've written a lot about the social and political aspects of. The, there seems to be like this puritanism. You know, they <clears throat> when they went after mm-hmm. when they decided they would mitigate the disease, they went out after after everything that was fun. Anything that was fun, you had to go. You know, so so bowling and surfing and parties and gatherings and Broadway and Disney World, you know, and conventions and hotels and uh, freedom of travel, you know, all had to go. And then we all had to kind of uh, uh, don sort of you know, middle-aged style uh, costumes, you know, with um, you know, masks and, and and dreary clothing and stay away from each other. And 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 now we, now with, you know, with the universal masking of everybody, you can't even smile at each other anymore. So it's, it, the whole thing is, 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 is so completely shocking. And, and, you know, one of the things I think maybe you've thought about I'm not sure, but I've thought about it too, is I don't understand a lot of people around the world are looking to the US to resist to resist this stuff. Mm-hmm. And we've seen, I would say, less resistance uh, to lockdowns in this country than, than you see in places like Italy and France. And even Denmark had huge street protests last week, you know, that actually caused the government to back down from some of its mandates. But in this country, we, we, we've seen very little in, in that way. And, and, and actually, you know, I think you 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 speak you speak about how you identify as a as a libertarian, um, you know, as do I. And I th- would have thought that we could have made a little more noise than we did uh, this year. Um, quite often, I felt like you know AIR was was standing up, you know, not entirely alone, but just with a handful of others, really. Right. And somebody, somebody other, somebody other uh, libertarians just went quiet. I, I think partially out of just con, you know confusion. They didn't know anything like this was possible, and they didn't know enough about public health to really address address the problem intelligently. So they just decided to go quiet. But I think I think it's been catastrophic. And I notice the public opinion polls are shifting, though. That's good. Yeah, that is good. And unfortunately, I mean, from the beginning, the major noisemakers on our side were also waving Trump flags and, you know, saying petty things like I want a haircut, which really isn't petty. I mean, I wanted a haircut, too. But also, people are dying of things other than COVID. And a lot of people are dying of COVID lockdowns. Yeah, um, yeah that's right. And, and you're right, the, the politics of it has been absolutely poisonous, you know, yeah. that the idea that if you're if your favorite openness that must make you a trump supporter and that's very confusing because you know we shouldn't forget that all of this began with trump you know mm-hmm. lockdowns began with trump he was well march 12th right he he banned uh, uh flights from from europe the uk and australia uh i didn't know the president had that power and and in normal times we would call any president who did something like that a complete a despot you know that was trump and um, then on march 13th is the white house released a kind of a soviet style central plan for shutting down schools and shopping centers and that sort of thing as far as i know the only copy of that uh, document which was previously uh, classified is that uh, uh, at our american institute for economic research's website we posted it and then and then on march 16th um the cdc was recommending shutting down all schools so this is the trump administration and, and trump didn't come around to the purely open you know to the view that we with confidence should just open everything back up and be back to normal until something like um maybe july or august you know and mostly under the influence of scott atlas who once he got to the white house uh began to talk some sense into into the president Um, i'm really grateful for that did you see the the backlash that scott atlas is getting here recently he tweeted something about protesting the michigan relocking down and of course every he used the words rise up and so now uh his detractors are saying that he's calling for violence against the governor of michigan Um, well that's just it's just so insincere i mean i i i I, you know i i knew exactly what scott was saying when he said that he meant 
people shouldn't stand for these attacks on the rights and liberties. He wasn't calling for violence. <laughs> you know, this is a deliberate misreading of his tweet. And, and but this is this is this year, right? Everything you say uh, is somehow twisted. I mean, I've been subjected to unbelievable amounts of abuse. I'm. Um, you know, my, 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 the first wishes on my, for my death, you know, I started getting um, sometime in, in March, but now they're so common that I don't even pay attention to them anymore. It's like several times a day. Yeah. I can't, I can't imagine being a public figure speaking. I mean, what, what amounts to heresy? You mentioned earlier that uh, there's almost a mystical quality to this and um I think you're right. I've, I, even to the point of deification of a virus, it's it's so weird. Um, you know, you hear about good God fearing Christians, but now it's it's really good virus fearing Covidians. I mean, when when Donald Trump uh, had the gall to say, "Do not be afraid of the virus." I mean, the Washington Post's headline was something like uh, Donald Trump in opposition to all the science says not to fear the virus, as if science has anything to say about, you know, what our emotions should be. Um, well, Trump Trump uh, violated a taboo with that with that comment because he he spoke a basic truth about immunology and uh -huh. viruses, you know, and I mean, there's several things about viruses that that we thought we knew. One is that they don't target everyone equally. There is a gradient, a demographic gradient associated with every uh, virus, and and every one of them is slightly different. This this one is merciful towards uh, healthy people, um, and it 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 its rage is focused uh, mainly on on uh, people without functioning immune systems. Um, which is highly regrettable, but you know the average age of death is 79 in this country. Um, probably 40% of the deaths occurred in long-term care facilities, and and young people are almost no risk uh, at all. Um, you know, I'm I'm my own risk of death from COVID is is uh, 0.2%. Uh, probably less than that, actually. In fact, in fact, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I talked. I spoke to a, a high-end uh, epidemiolo epidemiological statistician yesterday about some of these these online risk assessment um, things, and he said he said they're they're just complete nonsense. They're, yeah, of course, yeah. they're they're trying to scare you. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Oh well, the second thing that Trump, you know, yeah. is that when you get the disease, you get antibodies to the disease and those antibodies are uh, built into your t-cell memory and and that there are shared immunities from other coronaviruses these are this is like cell biology basics but for some reason this year you know we've just uh the, the this information has not been getting out yeah. might, you know, mostly to the to the media i would say um yeah that, that's boris johnson who's already had COVID. he had it months ago uh recently came down with it and the headlines were all Boris Johnson is in self-isolation um, uh, according to the rules, which that's the, that seems to be the big thing. Um, follow the science yeah. seems to be turning into follow the rules. So oh. even if you do have immunity or, I mean, you know, okay, maybe there have been two cases that might have uh, been a reinfection or something like that, but even those they're saying they're not infectious they're not going to spread it to anybody. And, and I, I don't, I don't, I don't know the, I don't know the full story behind that. Maybe it's a complete, a complete uh, dishonesty. Mm, I asked a, an epidemiologist about that the other day, and I can't remember the number of, how many people have been, have had verified at least positive PCR t t tests in the world? It's like 17 million, something ridiculous. So, so you have, you know, between two and five cases of uh, where they believe are verified reinfections, but um you know, there's a, there's a number of considerations here. You know, there could have been a, a mutation. Uh, you know, in any case, in this case, the extreme rare exception proves proves the rule. And there's nothing, there's there's nothing that's not textbook about this virus. That's that's the yeah. about it, You know, um, but it's like we threw out all of our textbooks. One of the things I did early on in the pandemic was because I've been writing about pandemics and liberty for 15 years, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, just like so, I was. Like mentally prepared to deal with this, and uh, you know what is the relationship between infectious disease and human liberty? It's it's a question that I've been sort of puzzling about for fifteen years. But this year we've all you know been forced to upgrade our knowledge. So one of the very first things I did was I downloaded Cell Biology for Dummies, and I read the whole book. And yeah, it was easy. 
on Amazon, you know, you can get it. And suddenly I find myself like more of an expert than most science reporters in this country. Yeah. So it's just, it's just, it's, it's all just been this parade of, of ignorance. And you mentioned the Boris Johnson situation. He, yeah, he went into quarantine because he came into contact with somebody who has COVID, but he's immune. I mean, what are we talking about here? It's, it's, it's just a level of, yeah, it really is. And I'm not, even now, I'm not sure why this happened to us or who's behind it or what's going on. I try to resist conspiracy theories, but, um, but it's, it's, it's mystifying. I mean, there's, I'll tell you just the other day, a person who's very much at the heart of, of the federal government res, response to this, to this thing, um, who who who's in meetings every day about this? Who's been there from from the beginning and following this thing is completely opposed to lockdowns. So it's completely rational. Um, asked me, he said, Jeffrey, why do you suppose this happened to us? And I'm thinking, you know, if you're asking me, there's a real problem. <laughs> I'm I'm supposed to ask you. You know, <laughs> just crazy. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it, it almost not to get too conspiratorial, but, you know, there obviously some very powerful people are taking advantage or plotting to take advantage of this situation that we're in. You know, the World Economic Forum with their uh, with their Agenda 2030 and Agenda 21 um, build back better. The, 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 the slogan that, you know, everyone thought Joe Biden made up, but as it turns out, like every politician across the world has been using it. Um, do you, do you have any thoughts on that? The, the great reset? Well, you know, uh, there's no question. There's some powerful people uh, opposed to uh, liberal society that are want to use this for their own, own purposes and that, that, that's really the case but they've always been around you know i don't understand why why this year they, they happen to uh, uh seem to have, have gained the levers of sure. of power now one of the thinkers i really follow carefully on all this stuff is sunetra gupta she's a epidemiologist at, at oxford university and i think she more than anybody else has given us a, a good way of understanding you know, a way out of this uh, problem, to not treat uh, diseases and viruses and pathogens as exogenous to the social order, but rather <clears throat> something that uh, we're, that we're surround, surrounds us, always has surrounded us, and that we have well, we co-evolved with them. And even in their presence, she says that we have agreed to have rights and liberties and democracy and equality, you know, even in the presence of these things, because um, if we panic and start dividing society by essential, unessential, uh, saying what you can do, where you can shop, where you can travel, these kind of things, what happens is that you end up uh, forcing the burden of herd immunity upon the mar marginalized people, uh, 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 the poor, the voiceless, the working mm -hmm. classes. And we create a new kind of caste system. It's not unusual at all in history uh, that, that, that societies have assigned the burden of disease to certain people based on their religion and their race. Mm -hmm their socioeconomic status and so on. I mean, this is, it's very interesting when you look, when you look at like India still has a caste system. You know, part, of, part of the idea uh, of being unclean is that you're diseased, right? So, so we make them bear the burden of the disease while the rest of us, you know, stay home and, and uh, stay safe, right? right. And, and so, so you create a kind of a, a, a new feudalism, um, but, and this is very common in pre-modern societies. You know, you can even read, in the Bible, you know, there is always the leper colonies and and uh, the people that we assign to be, have the job of bearing the disease for us, so we could stay clean and get the leper bells and that sort of thing. It's one of the scandals of Jesus is that he went around uh, taking away their their status of being unclean people. As a rabbi, he had the power to do that. But even in the United States, um, you know, under slavery, um, the, the slaves experienced all the disease. These are with, with far more prevalence than than anybody else in, in the uh, southern slaveocracies, right? So uh, the manor estates, you know, they tried to keep the disease out and they just assigned uh, slaves to bear all the burden of, of sure. pathogens. So the, the key to modernity and to liberalism, this is a very important point, is that we agreed to, to share equally 
regardless of, of race or uh, language or religion or socioeconomic status, the burden of, 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 of herd immunity we share among all of us. And then we use intelligence to figure out who the vulnerable populations are and we protect them until the pathogen becomes endemic. And that is how free societies evolved to deal with infectious diseases. It's a really modern idea, but it's something that, that, that in other words, we, we developed rights and liberties despite the presence of pathogens. We, we decided not to, uh, to uh, recreate a caste system like existed in the ancient world. We, 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 we don't uh, stay home, stay safe. We, we get out and, and it is immoral to expect um, a, a certain class of people to bear all the burden of, of pathogens while we protect ourselves. And it's not only immoral, it's also really bad public health because what you end up doing is uh, isolating one, one group of privileged elites who develop naive immune systems, you know, and then, and then. Did you say naive immune systems? Yeah. I mean, can you, can you define that? I, I, I think yeah, I can use context clues, but I've never heard the term. Right. Yeah, it it just means uh, it just means that your immune system hasn't been upgraded to to accommodate the latest pathogen. Right. You know, and and so where you see naive immune systems is usually in isolated tribes. You know, this is this is uh, infectious disease historians will will talk about you know like the the strange way in which you'll have an isolated tribe in, in the Amazon or somewhere else, typical before modern travel, um, and they'd be. They wouldn't be affected by any diseases uh, because they, they never came to them. Right. And so the immune systems, so the, the world is filled with these pathogens to which they had never been exposed. And so what happens is that this the most minor pathogen that gets through wipes out everybody. Right. And suddenly you you have a very mild disease like COVID nineteen is, and it just kills everybody on site because their immune systems are are naive. And and so that's what we've decided to do. I mean, this is this is New Zealand's plan, this is Australia's plan. This this idea of suppressing the virus and keeping it away from us is actually making us it's it's making us sick. Uh, we we can't live like this. We we need. So very early on, there was a, a an infectious disease expert writing for the New York Times. I'm trying to remember his name now. I want to say it's Franks or Katz, David Katz, um, said on the Bill Maher show, and this would have been something like um, second week of March. He said, you know, it sounds a little sh maybe it sounds shocking, but what we really need to do is get get uh, get COVID. Uh, because the, the 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 fatality risk for 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 ninety nine point seven percent of the population is is extremely low, uh, much lower than for the seasonal flu. So we'll get it, get immune, and we'll get past this. We'll get herd immunity. We'll we'll be done with it. And that's what we've always done. That's what we did with H one N one in two thousand nine. That's what we did with, with uh, Asian. The Hong Kong flu of 68-69, the Asian flu of 57-58, and it's, it's even what we, um, yeah, that's the way we've dealt with disease ever since 1918. 1918 is the last time we played this run and hide game with viruses, and, and we learned that it didn't work. I mean, the, the quarantines didn't work in 1918. The masking didn't work. All the, and, and it wasn't even tried in most places in the country. It was like Chicago. Um, San Francisco, a yeah. handful of other places uh, tried these things. It didn't work. So what we've, we've, we've learned since then is to have a modern attitude towards these things. And <clears throat> so another point that Sinatra Gupta makes, which I, I, I don't know, I mean, I find this point absolutely mind-blowing. It never even occurred to me, but she's, she's like this theoretical epidemiologist who really understands a lot of things. But she pointed out something amazing to me, which is that after World War I, when travel and migration became a, a very common way that we interact with people, and so trade blossomed all over the world. We were able to, to, to travel a lots of different places. We had immigrants coming here and moving throughout the whole country, not just living in New York, but spreading out through the whole country. We had human beings more in contact with each other than ever before. And she said, this is responsible. And I don't, I don't think she's a libertarian, much less a proponent of capitalism, but what she's basically saying is that capitalism, the rise of modern capitalism after in the 20, in the early part of the 20th century, led to the creation of, of the most robust and universally uh, uh, robust immune systems that humanity has ever seen. Mm -hmm. We ended our isolation and got better because our immune systems are adaptable. And um, 
you know, we evolved to fight diseases and we got ever better at it. And she says, this is a major contributing factor for why lifespans have increased so much in the 20th century and why uh, new pathogens have been ever less deadly oh, throughout wow. the last 100 years. Right? So <laughs> very interesting because, you know, as, as libertarians and enthusiasts for economics, we might uh, tend to maybe uh, attribute uh, long lives and healthy lives and, and prosperity only to economic forces, well, right. better, better. Or with healthcare. modern medicine or whatever. Yeah, medicine, or just, you know, riches and we're smarter. Uh -huh. like that. She says that, that a major factor is actually the, um, the strengthening of immune systems in light of globalization that happened uh, in the early part of the 20th century and just got more and more intense throughout the 20th century. So we're stronger than ever. We're, we're better than ever. We, we're, our immune systems are um, more sophisticated than ever. And this is, uh, accounts for why we live so much longer. So I, to, my, to my knowledge, I don't, I'm not aware of any economist who's ever observed this. And it's the first time she told that to me, um, it blew my mind because I immediately really saw that there's some there's some real power in that analysis. And I hope that at some point uh, people follow up on this, uh, particularly mm -hmm. economists, which which actually, and I know I'm talking a little bit much. Let me just make one last point here uh, along these lines. So uh, we, we become so uh, hyper specialized in our thinking um, that that, uh, you know, like, we study economics. We think economics is is what we specialize in. It's all we need to think about. Or, um, you know, you develop a libertarian political outlook and and you think about rights and liberties, and but but you don't think about other things like cell biology, or whatever. It's like yeah. we are we we've become you know ignorant of of these broader fields of study, and and this has been very um, costly to us because. When something like this happens this year, it's just, it's, I think for a lot of people, it's just take, take, it's taking people by surprise. And so they don't, they don't know what to say uh, mm. about it. So I, I hope that um, one of the things that's going to happen after all this is over is that people that are interested in, in the status of liberalism in the world start taking seriously yeah. uh, subjects like epidemiology and, and immunology and, and, and public health. And this is a, a major thing we're going to have to fix, I think, in the coming year. This is, and we're talking about um, Dr. Gupta. She, uh, just to add a little bit of color, she's not like just some, you know, half-rate epidemiologist or like an associate professor or anything like that, right? Like she's, she's very well respected. She's been mm -hmm. called the premier epidemiologist in the world. Before. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's not, it, this is, this is not just some crackpot, you know, from no. from Podoc University. Yeah, she's she's a, a real visionary, I can tell you, and she, and also uh, in addition to that, she's a she's a novelist, so she's like this world genius. No. Um, I ran a I re, I reran an article she wrote twenty years ago um, on on AIR. Uh, there was an attack on disease modeling, and she said this is you know this is not the right way to think about diseases. Uh, you can't just uh, put them in an agent-based uh, computer model and expect them to follow a, a predictable route that computer programs demand that they do. And she says, the more this modeling goes on, uh, the more we be began to <clears throat> over oversimplify the world and create this illusion of control. Mm -hmm. so if this continues, it's going to lead to genuine disaster. So she, she wants to get back to a, a pure medically-based way of understanding uh, pathogens. Why do you think people still put stock in models? I mean, climate models, I can kind of understand. They're predicting the future far, far in advance of when any of this stuff will come true. So everybody's going to forget about it anyway. But these disease models, I mean, they're predicting stuff in February that's supposed to happen in April. And every one of them is so far off base. And But on the other hand, when I mention that to people, without citing anything, they say, no, 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 these things have actually been pretty accurate if you look at it. And I, I don't see it, but I also, I'm not a, I'm not a data scientist. I'm not a statistician. So I, I mean, I, maybe I don't, maybe I'm just reading them wrong. Well, what do you there's think? Two, there's, there's two big models. There's the IHME model and there's the uh, Imperial College model. And both have, have, have proved catastrophically, catastrophically wrong. The IHME, IHME model keeps revising its predictions backwards. Uh, mm -hmm. 
to make it look better than it actually is, but they've been off by 70, 80 factors, 90% more, you know, it's like, it's just, it's just utterly crazy. I mean, the New York times, February 27th, and by the way, all these crazy predictions, not all of them are based on models. Many of them are, but sometimes they're just people making stuff up like uh, Donald McNeil of the New York times. Who's uh, who's got his training is in uh, rhetoric from Berkeley mm-hmm. University, uh, is the top infectious disease uh, journalist at the New York Times, and he he said on a podcast uh, February twenty seventh that um, six point six million Americans were going to die from COVID unless we locked down. Okay, that was a crazy, insane prediction, but it was made in nation's top newspaper with a, and a podcast that was listened to at the time by two to three million people a day. So, you know, the, the amount of irresponsibility here is just incredible. And the other thing that's been discovered in the meantime is that uh, the IHME model, IHME model and the Imperial College model all assume homogeneity of, of risk to, uh, to COVID. So they're not even adjusting for the population gradients uh, of, of risk. For, for the fact that it's radically heterogeneous, you know, for most of the population, this is uh, hardly a disease at all, and and um, and so it's really focused on on the unhealthy elderly. That's where the real, real risk is. But the models don't even build in those factors. They just assume equal risk from the part of uh, part of everybody, and then they use these agent-based models to imagine that everybody stays separate. You know. And, and there's a sort of intuitive plausibility to the idea of social uh, distancing, I suppose. Um, I asked uh, a real specialist about this because, because, by the way, I've never seen any scientific evidence that the way we're talking about social distancing, which is really just forced human separation, is capable of mitigating a virus. I've, I've just not seen any research that seems to back that. And I asked a uh, a top expert, and I said, but what's your actual view about social distancing? He said, well, he said, you know, it's certainly right that if 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 I'm in um, Washington, D.C., and somebody else lives in Paris, uh, and we never come in contact with each other, it's very unlikely that he would be able to give me a disease. <laughs> in that sense, you know, that's the intuitive plausibility. But the stuff of, of six feet apart, and you can only have three people on an elevator, and five people at a table, and 10 people at a house gathering, it's all just completely Im- improvised uh, gibberish based on, on medieval style uh, miasma theory, just a, a mysticism, it's just a failure to understand. And as Gupta says, that the illusion of control. We can't bear the idea that there's a pathogen uh, uh, present among us that we can't see and can't control. It's just, something has gone wrong with our brains. We're unwilling to recognize that and admit that. Yeah. And even, I mean, even now at this point, governors are starting to admit it. They're not, it's it's driving me crazy because, you know, from the very beginning, Dr. Osterholm, who uh, he, he's a professor here at the University of Minnesota, and he's one of Joe Biden's top advisors. Yeah. He got into some trouble because he said, look, you're not going to, you're not going to spread this virus through incidental contact at the grocery store. You probably don't even need to wear a mask. And that was months ago. He got into huge trouble for it. And um, so he walked back that, of course. Uh, and now, you know, we've got governors um, enacting restrictions on Thanksgiving and Christmas gatherings and that sort of thing. Um, but they're also coming around to that. Look, this thing isn't spreading at the grocery store. Um, it's spreading at restaurants and bars after 10 o'clock because, you know, the, the virus is a night owl. But uh, they're not lifting the mandates I, I'm walking in the grocery store and there's people like I, I wear the mask, but I, um, you know, I'm kind of flipping about it. Uh, I mimic the, the manager and security guard at Target who wear it below their nose. Uh, um, but people people freak out because, you know, this 10 seconds of me reaching past them to grab a jar of peanut butter um, might just might just might just uh, spark an infection. Um, what what yeah, do you think? We've, we've all gotten just wildly paranoid, you know, and the adopted this Nietzschean view of humanity. It's actually not even Nietzsche's view, but he talked about it. He said, there's two ways you can look at look at people as bundle, bundles of dangerous germs and pathogens, or as human beings with dignity and rights, you know? Yeah. And and so we've 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 we rejected this liberal view, uh modern view towards human beings and adopted a, a medieval and uh, scary view. As for why the restrictions aren't being repealed, you know, um part of the part of the problem is that uh, par- partially because of media, but also 
I don't know, it's just the, the nature of politics right now. Um, governors don't want to be held responsible for, for any of the acts of liberalization. And this is a particular issue. Like, I'll just give you an example of this. Like, one of the things that, that the Trump administration could do right now, but has not done, is fix the uh, travel restrictions, right? Like, yeah. just open up travel again so that Paris can come to you and you can go to Paris. And there's people being separated from loved ones all over the world, even now. For nine months, people have been um, isolated from friends and family because they happen to live in a different country. So there's talk within the White House about doing it, and they were considering it. And then the cases went up in Europe and said, oh, we can't do that because we're bringing them here. Okay. You know, the pathogens are already here. There's, there's no danger in having people bring it here. Again, it's, it's, it's not, this is not some <laughs> nasty thing we, just, we can continue to keep out. It's, these travel restrictions, and by the way, uh, you know, the World Health Organization and the CDC and every infectious disease expert ever has confirmed that the travel restrictions do not work and are uh, more costly uh, to society than than any benefits that come from them in the presence of a, of a new virus. So there's 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 nobody who recommended these travel restrictions. The Trump administration did that on so, but now they can't seem to get rid of them because because uh, because there's no political gain to them. And if anything should go wrong, and it's especially because when you have the press, you know, all over this. If if Trump repealed restrictions on travel from Europe, you would have CNN going, "Oh my God, diseased Europeans are coming here, and this is all Trump's fault." You know, so they didn't want to deal with those kind of headlines. Right. And so then there was talk about, well, okay, now we can't open up with Europe, we can't open up with Australia, we can't open up with UK, but maybe we can open up with Brazil, you know, where the virus seems to, have, you know more or less under control, and Bolsonaro's a good guy, and and uh, we have good trading relationships with Brazil. So there's one person on the task force who's arguing for this, and five other people who are like, yeah, let's not do that. And that was the end of it. So this is, this is the problem, right? I mean, this is, these restrictions are in place, and, and there are very few people with the guts to, to repeal them. I, I, you know, I live in Massachusetts, right? We we are as stringent now as we've been uh, since since April. It's unbelievable. But you look at the, the and you know, a very interesting question is like, what's wrong with the American uh, government and with with uh, our our governments around this country? Most countries in the world, when you look at the stringency indexes, you you see that they they got really stringent in the early days, and then and then got got rid of all the stringencies. You know, like place even a place like New Zealand, you know, which locked down, uh, then opened up, not to trade and travel and that sort of. thing. Thing, but just internally, or um, you know, you think of other places like Denmark and Norway, uh, many places around the world, most countries around the world, you know, got really stringent initially, like 60, 70, 80 uh, percent. So it's very costly for people, and they, they, the stringencies are down now to 20, 30 percent, you know. In the US, it's unbelievable. It was like we went up to like 70 percent and basically have stayed there, you know, all year. And I, I don't know why. U.S. government is so completely, our governments in the United States are so completely unable to adapt to the realities. It's like, you, you'd think that a country with a Bill of Rights and, and a history of freedom, that sort of thing, would be anxious to get back to freedom. But instead, we're destroying the arts. You know, I'd be like, Broadway is still closed. I mean, the live performances, music, it was, we've got musicians all over the country just sitting on their hands. I can't, have no idea what to, what to do. Uh, you know, we're bankrupting our, our, our hotels and hospitality industry and small restaurants. Restaurants are one of the few industries in this country that aren't controlled by some one major, two or three major uh, um, dominant corporations. We still have lots of local restaurants, you know, all over the country. They're all being bankrupted. Like, why, why are we doing this? And it just keeps going on and on and on. And in New York alone, I mean, like half the businesses are shut down. I don't know if you've been there, but that's a shocking thing to go to the world's greatest city and see the place just completely windswept. Or, or just traveling through New England, like I, like I've, I've done variously, and just driving into these small towns, go to the downtown districts. Half the stores are are, are bankrupt. I mean, I'm sorry, just, the whole thing is so unbelievably depressing, and and yet even in the presence of all these high high costs, all this stuff, we're still not opening it up. I mean, it's just something unbelievable. I don't know what it's going to take uh, for these, for these governors to shift and, so, and whether it's on the state level or the federal level, I don't, I don't know what, what's gone wrong in this 
country where we have preferred these. You know that in the stringency indexes that Russia is much lower than the U.S. today? It's just unbelievable. <laughs> well, you know, of course, they're, they're maniacs in Russia. Um, <laughs> I think... Uh, I mean, that might be part of it, too, is that America has just become very sanitized. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're a descendant or descending empire. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's just we're, we're, we're grasping and hoping that there's some sort of savior to come. And, of course, Donald Trump is not that savior. And I think that's, oh. I think that's a huge part of it. I mean, he's, the, he's sort of the face of the degeneracy. And, you know, to bring it back sort of to the mysticism and the, and the religious uh, view of this thing. Um, it's, yeah. it's what it, I mean, that's what it is. It's a, it's a moral issue. It's not even, it's not even about spreading a virus really. Uh, Vin, Vin Armani um, from the very beginning, he said, this isn't a genetic virus. This is a mimetic virus. Yeah. Um, the, the real, the real infection is what this is doing to our psychology. And I think America more than anybody else uh, given, you know, given our sort of Puritan founding, I mean, you know, America, America is a religious, what Chesterton, I think called America, the country with the soul of a church. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. and I think that, you know, as secular as we become, we don't really shake that. Uh, I think you make a really interesting point. You know, in in the Middle Ages, there was this, this b- the belief, especially during the uh, during the plagues, that, that the reason the plagues visited us is because we're sinful. Mm. And so there were these these groups. They traveled all over Europe and even in the UK called the flagellants, and and they would dress up in these dark uh, clothes, penitent outfits and and whip themselves and they go go from city to city doing this now why were they doing this um well because there's two things one is that they believed that that it was the presence of sin in the world and the lack of holiness in the world that was causing god to punish us with disease but they the the reason they're so public about it uh, is that they they wanted to make everybody else uh feel a sense of guilt so like they were going to a town where people would be behaving normally they'd be look you're out shopping, you're making, you're, you're having fun, you're in, singing and dancing. And you're, so therefore you're causing the disease to come and, and we're whipping ourselves and miserable. And the, and the more fun you have, uh, the more we have to whip ourselves because, because we have to reduce the amount of sin there is in the world. And so they're extremely judgy, you know, towards everybody and trying to sp- spread guilt and sadness all around. So if you want to put that into uh, the 21st century, it's something like this, like, Something happened four years ago when, when Trump was elected president that there was a, a class of people in this country that said that this was an intolerable, suffer, insufferable, wrong thing to have happened. It never should have happened. It happened because of Russia, and then it happened because of somebody else and somebody else. And finally, it's like this year that it said, but look, this country is so sinful. Uh, we're going to have to punish everybody for for allowing Donald Trump to stay as as president, and so they became the new flagellants. You know, uh, no more bowling, no more uh, surfing, no more fishing, no more movies, no more Broadway, no more parties, no more fun, until Donald Trump is gone. And yeah, it th- that is the moral element here. It's it's absolutely pathological. But I I agree with you that there's some there's some. St- strange poetry in that, that repeats, you know, this middle ages experience. One of the funny headlines that, that, that came out um, um, in early March in the New York Times was an article by Donald McNeil, uh, this, our friend, it said, to control this virus, we need to go full medieval. I looked at it, I thought, that is insane. You know, I remember that. So much for liberalism, right? That is some, that's, well, it turns out we did. You know, so now we've we got rid of dentistry. We have the new flagellants. We've recreated the caste system. Uh, you know, we've got a new feudalism of of people with blue check marks who can live on Zoom, while uh, the working classes and and the unclean deliver drop off meals uh, at their door. Right. So yeah, we have gone full medieval and and rejected every important uh, tenet that we previously believed about modernity, and we did that this year. I think one thing that will kind of I don't. I don't think there's a cure for this mimetic virus. I, th- I think we're gonna have mask mask season the same way we have flu season every year for the forever. Uh, that's that's sort of my my pessimistic take on it. But I think my optimistic take um, right now, 
if you go hang out with a group of 20 something restaurant and retail workers, not a single one of them is going, they're going to tell you that they wear their masks and they're going to tell you that they're, that they're good and moral and upstanding. But if you actually go to a party at one of their houses, they're going to be drinking. They're going to be out past 10. They're going to be, um, hugging. I, I, I got a, I got a big hug from a, from a 22 year old friend a couple of weeks ago. And it was fantastic. It was the first time I'd hugged somebody that wasn't a family member or my partner in months. And like, I teared up when it happened. It was, it was, it was, it was like an experience. Oh, and, yeah. um, I think that as these people who are living via zoom and delivered meals, uh, start to get infected by the virus, realize, hey, hey, this wasn't so bad. Um, because they're locked in their houses. Of course they're not getting it. Like you said, it's being, it's being the burden of the of the infection is being shifted onto the retail mm-hmm. workers and the restaurant workers. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and of course the and of course the the licensed practical nurses who staff these nursing homes, um, the you know, the wage workers. Uh, and they're the ones who are realizing, Hey, yeah, it sucks. I got sick for a few days and here I am back at work. Um, that hasn't happened to the cubicle workers or the, or the vice presidents or the, uh, you know, consultants and all that. They're, they're all able to do their jobs via zoom. They're able to live, uh, without leaving the house. It, it, it almost makes me wish that it was more spreadable by kids just so that kids could bring it home you know, from the limited access they get to their on-campus schooling. Yeah. I, you know, I wonder how successful we are at at segregating society into the disease and not disease. I mean, probably to some extent, but I, you know, I just don't, I just don't know. I I try to follow all the science, by the way, there's 50,000 studies out now on coronavirus. There's no way anybody who claims to have followed all the studies because it's not possible. It's not Mm -hmm. possible for anybody to have followed all these studies, much less uh, repeating them. They're, They're, they're cranking out these studies, you know, just so quickly. They don't even have time to uh, 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 test them. There was an article that appeared in Nature uh, a few weeks back that seemed to endorse uh, mask mandates. Um, that without between between the submission and the publication was seven days. Well, my colleague here, Phil Magnus, got got into the article, started digging through the data, and realized it was all completely wrong. They had. <laughs> The wrong wrong survey information placed in the wrong dates, and they you know gamed everything up uh, to come up with their you know fake uh, correlation and and uh, and invent, invented causation. And the whole study was bogus. So he wrote uh, Nature and proved that it was completely wrong. Two weeks later, they came back with a note saying, "Well, you're right. There's some errors here, but it doesn't affect that conclusion, which is incorrect." Um, so they took two weeks to even respond to his letter back, but one week to, to publish it between submission and publication. So, and the amount of phony science out there, I mean, the, the CDC, it's just, what a, it's just a scandal what's going on. You know, CDC doesn't even go into the office. So you've got all these people who are working there and there's two or three guys who are in charge of posting things on, the, on their website, um, studies and things. And so they just grab things that they like and stick, stick, stick them up there without any scientific review process whatsoever. And so there was this perfectly silly article that appeared a, f- a few months ago where they, they, they found 300 people who tested negative and 300 people who tested positive and they asked him what they had done in the previous two weeks. Uh, did you go to the? Did you go to church? Did you, uh, did you stay indoors? A large, large number of people. Did you wear your mask? Um, <clears throat> did you uh, travel anywhere? Did you go to the movies? Did you go to restaurants? Did you do all these various questions? Like twelve possible activities, and they tr- tried to find which. <laughs> so already, this is already sort of sketchy, right? Like you know, just. People really remember exactly what they did too, so it's not clear. Um, but uh, what they found was uh, between the two groups that um, there's no correlation at all between the sick and the not sick on on anything that they asked. Not mask wearing, not church going, not gatherings, not protests, nothing. The one exception was was uh, restaurants. Mm-hmm. So they dis- discovered that there's a slightly higher incidence of a positive PCR tests with the people who went to restaurants than not. And so I'm thinking, well, you know, that's a funny conclusion. If, if you didn't show any correlation with mask wearing or gatherings or 
church going or traveling or anything else, why wouldn't that be the headline? No relationship whatsoever between uh, uh, wearing a mask and avoiding the disease. You know? No, the headline was you know, restaurants are spreading COVID. Okay. So I, and so, and the conclusion was, you know, if you're going to have a restaurant, it needs to be extremely well ventilated. Well, I looked through the study and deep within it, it turns out when they asked uh, if, if you'd been to a restaurant, they didn't ask uh, more, more uh, this was taken in the, in like July, right? They didn't ask a more fundamental question. Were you indoors or not? They never asked that question. Right. So the people who, who went to restaurants, they might've been eating outdoors. We, we still don't know because that wasn't part of the survey. So in other words, the conclusion of the article that you need to have a you know, high degree of ventilation in your restaurants if you're gonna open them, uh, can't even be correct. Because they had no idea if people, in those days, most people were dining outdoors anyway. So it might not have anything to do with being inside. And yet the CDC is pushing out this, this fake science on their own website, giving it the, the imprimatur of the Center for Disease Control. If if anybody believes that garbage anymore, I don't know if anybody trusts anything the CDC says, yeah. but if you do, you're gonna be massively misled by this ridiculous study. And that's just one example among thousands. Um, yeah, well, that's a, that's a terrible place to end. So I, I do wanna, I, I wanna, okay. I wanna ask you, I, <laughs> I wanna ask you about um, some of your previous work. You, uh, you wrote this article a long time ago that I go back and reread every year um, about libertarian brutalism. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think a lot of people, a lot of people took that personally. Um, I think it's a lot more abstract than that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I was and, thinking about that. That article is widely misunderstood, I think. But anyway. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, basically, it, what, it, what it boils down to is libertarians can be perceived as assholes or we can be perceived as um, people who are interested in making the world a better place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and you've got all these books. Uh, it's the, the bourbon for breakfast was absolutely awesome to read while sitting on the patio at a restaurant drinking bourbon. Um, Jetson's world talking about how we live in the future. Uh, the market loves you, which is your most recent, um, mm -hmm. well, pr prior to pre COVID book. Uh, can you, can you just kind of talk a little bit about your um, sort of the thesis of your life's work, I guess? Yeah. Um, well, I guess my life was a, that there's no inconsistency between living a, a good life and living in a good society. Yeah. You know, and, and I think maybe libertarianism tended to neglect that broader uh, perspective for a long time. Like we, we should aspire to live in a good society in which everyone um, has a chance to, to thrive and cooperate with other people where, we, where there's not exclusions mm -hmm. and, and uh, coerced inequalities and things like that. Like, I think liberalism um, or libertarianism can coexist, in fact, as uh, really an essential element of living a, a good in a good world. Uh, where, where people are not hungry, where people are not suffering, where people are not discriminated against systematically. So these are not inconsistent. Like that's why I call, uh, that's why, you know, the brutalism article, you know, contrasted brutalism with uh, humanitarianism, you know, mm. like I, I was reading, uh, reading back and some of the early works of, of Murray Rothbard and Mises and Hayek. And the liberal tradition has always been about the common good. And I don't think that's, something we should f forget about, you know, um, just in the name of promoting, uh, you know, our individual interests. There's, there's not an inconsistency between our individual interests and the social interests, uh, 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 more broadly speaking. And that's always been a theme of liberalism. And I think I've, I've tried to revive that, not by preaching so much, but by illustrating, celebrating, and uh, uh, giving ex examples of, of the consistency between between a radical view towards liberty and living the best in the best possible uh, world, mm -hmm. and that we we don't we don't we don't really face a, a, a choice between making the world a better place and living a good life. Those are all the same thing, and that's I would say a really important message that I've I've always had in my head, not in a preachy way, but in a way that 
inspires me uh, to, to, to reveal as much as I can all the ways in which liberty helps achieve um, more human cooperation and, and better lives for all, all people. And I, I, I hope that that's been part of my influence is to, is to drive uh, the ethos of libertarianism in that direction a little bit more. And I hope that, um, that, that I can get back to that after this, after this year is over. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate it. And I know a lot of other people do. We've been um, truly, truly blessed to have you as part of this movement. Um, and, uh, you know, as influential as you've been for um, actually, you know, most of my life and, mm. and for the entirety of my libertarianism, I guess. So thank you so much for joining me today, Jeffrey. Where can people find you? I'm on, t- on Twitter all the time, Jeffrey A. Tucker. Uh, make sure you get the right account because there's a couple of fraud accounts out there that keep <laughs> Um, and then I write every every day or two at the American Institute for Economic Research. So, um, and you know, let me just end with one last thing here. You know, um, these are difficult times to keep your hopes up, and uh, despair is just just closer than it ever has been in most of our lives. Um, um, stay hopeful. Uh, don't despair. Uh, think about the light. Think about the truth. Think about the possibility we can get through this and start building our lives again, but we need you. Uh, we all need each other. Um, and and we're in the struggle together and people who love liberty are more important than they've ever been now. So now's the time to speak out. Now's the time to help others. Um, when others around you start to despair and, and uh, be there for them, love them, mm. care for them. And, and uh, we'll get through this, I think. All right. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks again to Jeffrey Tucker for joining me today. Head over to urbanagorist.com slash 10 for today's show notes, including a link to Jeff's Twitter, which is not to be missed. Thursday this week, I'll be posting an interview with the great Sal Mayweather, otherwise known as Sal the Agorist. You won't want to miss that, so please be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and share it with your friends. And if you have a free minute, please leave a review on iTunes for me, even if you're listening on a different app. iTunes reviews really help get the word out there. I really appreciate it, and until next time, live free. This is the way I-